hello, hello. Thank you for tuning in to the inaugural episode of um, Fill in the Blank Podcast. I haven't decided what to call it yet, but I think, uh, at least for now, I'll be posting them over at musictherapysource.com. Um, really, just because that's my website that uh, gets the most traffic. I've got a couple others, but uh, most people seem to end up there. And while uh, certainly I ask a lot of my pod, uh, a lot of my questions in this podcast with music therapists in mind, um, they definitely, uh, it's just an interesting podcast for any music lover, really, because um, with our, uh, uh, with my guest today, Amy Belfi, uh, who's a neuroscientist uh, and researcher, a postdoc um, at NYU, we learn a lot about how music affects our brains, our emotions, and, um, and it's just, you know, as a music lover, it's interesting to know these things. And it's far from uh, like a stale academic article. It's, it's, it's a great conversation. So I do encourage you to check it out. Also, if you do happen to be a music therapist, I've got a gift for you. If you would like to learn some um, color chords or some chord progressions for like relaxation or um, even just to expand your chord repertoire, you can... Uh, get a free recap from my um, conference presentation, which was in Kansas City. Um, it's not exactly what I did there, but it's similar. You can get a recap at musictherapysource.com slash recap. That's, what, that's where I'll put it at, okay? So since this is a music podcast, let's start off with some music. Uh, a little while ago, uh, I guess over a year ago now, uh, my neighbor Rob Chaffetz came over and provided some saxophone on this track I was working on. It's smooth, it's sexy, it's pretty cool. Um, check them out and uh, enjoy. Belfi. <laughs> Welcome. That's me. Thanks. That's you. Who, <laughs> glad uh, to be here. I'm, I'm super glad you're here. This is my first uh, first music therapy source podcast. I'm not sure what to call it yet. Um, I don't know if it'll just be the music therapy source podcast or Matt Logan music podcast or uh, I uh, maybe I'll think up something clever, although that doesn't happen too often. So <laughs> yeah. Uh, so who who are you? Um, right. So I am currently a, a postdoc, a postdoctoral associate in the Department of Psychology at New York University. Um, I graduated this spring from the University of Iowa with my PhD in neuroscience, and my research is on music and the brain. Music and the brain. Yeah, you know, it's I... extremely broad and vague, but I guess that captures it all. It's it's broad, but it's a, a kind of... Um kind of a hot 
field right now. Like we're kind of just at the yeah, forefront, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. There's there's a lot of people out there doing work on music and neuroscience and psychology, and it's really exciting, cool stuff. So, how do you know what to uh, what to research? How do you know where to go? Um, or how do you decide? It, it's really kind of. I mean, at least for me, I take a lot of ideas, especially initially from things I guess I've experienced in my life when listening to music or things I like about music. And then you kind of have to go to the literature of what people have already done. And there's a pretty solid body of work relating to music and psychology and neuroscience. And so you read stuff that's related to the idea that you have, see what other people have done and how you can either branch off of it, extend it, do something new um, related to what's already been done and what questions you want to answer. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you said you kind of start with your own experiences mm-hmm. um, you know, while listening to music. What, yeah. Where were you coming from? Um, so something I was thinking of, well, one of the questions you had asked me before doing this podcast was, have you ever had like a Eureka moment? Uh-huh. And I was thinking you know, that maybe in movies or something, that's kind of the way they portray science as working, but science is more often like a kind of slow plodding progress. But I did kind of have a eureka moment in coming up with the idea for my dissertation. So it was um, uh, pretty early on in grad school, but I was riding in a car back from Lollapalooza and the music festival uh-huh. with several of my friends who all are, are musicians. And we were just talking about music and kind of like the psychology of music and what goes on in our heads when we listen to music. And we started talking about how listening to music can bring back all kinds of memories and really vivid memories. And it can trigger these feelings of nostalgia. And so during that card, I was like, that's a really cool idea. I, I want to do my research on this. And up until then I had been kind of like floundering about what exactly I wanted to study. So then I, I went back to lab on Monday and, and found a couple papers relating to music and autobiographical memory. So when music triggers personal memories about things that have happened in your life. And so from there, I decided that's what I wanted to do my dissertation on. So it was kind of this weird um, moment of an idea about a research project that came just out of a conversation about music. So you're like writing in the car and you're like jamming out with your friends and talking about it. And you're like, yeah. wait, guys, I got it. I know yeah, what I'm going to do. Yeah, I was like, this is so cool. I really want to study this. And that's just where it started. Now, to make that your your dissertation topic, did that take any convincing? Um, so I was really lucky in grad school in that I had like just an amazing advisor, um, Dan Trinnell, who's a neuropsychologist at the University of Iowa, who gave me a ton of freedom to pick the topic that I wanted to study. So people in his lab are doing all sorts of different, really interesting, cool research. And I mm-hmm. came to him and said, you know, I have this idea about music and emotion and autobiographical memory. And he kind of helped me um, shape the particular studies that I was going to do. And so his lab, everyone in his lab studies patients who have brain damage um, from strokes or brain surgeries, things like that. And so I knew I was going to work with a patient population, but the specific topic was really up to me. And so I came to him with this idea and he was really supportive of that. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. So when I think, um, about music with, with people with brain damage, uh, I, well, first of all, I think a lot, uh, about a lot of my work, uh, more with 
well, I've worked in um, rehabilitation, kids with traumatic brain injury, uh, and then also uh, on the other, uh, older, I guess, uh, end of the spectrum, adults with neurodegenerative diseases. Uh, and so it's, it's always fascinating how that changes people's perception of music. And then I also think about, like, Oliver Sacks' book, uh, Musicophilia, yeah. where he has all these case studies of, mm-hmm. of um, people who have sustained brain damage and then either uh, have a really... I guess it's, it doesn't sound nice to say an interesting um, disability or inability to perceive, but it just yeah. changes. And, and it's from a, from a clinical perspective, it's it's um, pretty interesting. Did you what did you encounter in your own uh, research, kind of along those lines? Um, so one portion of my dissert, my dissertation, I guess, had kind of two portions. One was more about memory, and one was more about emotion. And um, Relating to Oliver Sacks' stuff, you know, his book is called Musicophilia. Um, part of my research at Iowa was looking at almost the opposite. So it's a thing called music anhedonia. So it's trying to identify people who, went after they had brain damage, no longer enjoyed music or lost feelings of pleasure when they um, listened to music. And there's been a couple case studies that are in the literature of patients who've had this exact thing happen to them. They get brain, they have brain damage from a stroke or, um, other causes. And then they say, you know, I used to love music, but I don't anymore. So I surveyed, uh, around a hundred patients with brain damage from a registry at the university of Iowa to try to pinpoint if there are certain consistent types of brain damage to certain areas that were associated with this anhedonia for music. And I didn't really find anything consistent. So what I the the main finding from this is that it was actually pretty rare to find people who had a complete lack of uh, pleasure from music after brain injury. There was really one patient that we identified that was a clear case of music anhedonia, but otherwise, out of the um, you know ninety or so that I surveyed, most people still um, it was pretty preserved and enjoyment of music. So I think that kind of speaks to almost why, why music might be a useful type of uh, a therapeutic agent in patients with all different kinds of disorders, because it seems to be a persistent uh, quality of music is that it can uh, still evoke, you know, pleasure in listeners. Right. Did, was there any variability in that? Like uh, with relation to um, uh, when the, the brain injury or brain damage occurred, like, was there uh, uh, that anhedonia, that lack of pleasure uh, initially that then maybe got better? Was there any sort of recovery? So I, the, this particular study was kind of like a, it was totally exploratory. It was almost a first step. And so it was just a survey that I sent out to all of the patients in our registry, which we have hundreds. um, And they had all different, all of them had focal brain damage, but it was, you know, in all different areas. Some had had their brain damage, you know, several, you know, even decades ago. Some had it just last year. Um, so it was a very diverse sample of patients. And it was just a written survey. So I didn't get to go super in-depth with all of these patients. But most of them, you know, I let, had an open-ended question that asked about, have you noticed any changes, positive or negative, in your music appreciation or anything like that? And certain people would say things like, I have problems hearing now or related to perception of music um, that wouldn't that didn't necessarily impair their enjoyment of music. There's really only that one case I saw that um, said, you know, I used to love music and now I just get nothing from it anymore. Huh. That that for me would have a tremendous impact on my quality of life. Yeah. Yeah, it's it was it's kind of 
almost distressing. Like I can't imagine having that happen. And the interesting thing is that I also, as a part of this survey, gave them a survey that asked about other types of enjoyable behaviors, like enjoying a good meal or a conversation with family. And um, this this particular case didn't report negative changes in any of those. It seemed weirdly, oddly specific to to music. To and music. so the next step is to bring this person back into the lab and do further um, tests on them just to try and identify, you know, why did this happen and what other potential deficits might they have related to music. Sure. Do you remember um, where the uh, brain damage was localized in that particular patient? Yeah. So they had a small stroke to the right, like straddle area, which totally, it does totally make sense because the striatum is important for a reward in response to all kinds of other rewarding things, uh -huh. which does make it interesting that it would be specific to music. I mean, it's yeah. not surprising that it affects their reward processes and that they lose pleasure to music, but it is surprising that it seems to be specific to music, um, which is what we are interested in looking more into. Yeah, that's fascinating. That's fascinating. Mm -hmm. uh, I wonder... Yeah, it, it, there's all kinds of questions, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, something that a lot of music therapists say when they're pitching music therapy or um, kind of explaining the benefits is that, uh, you know, the, the entire brain is involved in processing music. Yeah. Um, did this person have any any impairments in their, like, ability to perceive music other than their ability to get enjoyment from it? So that's that's a question. Um, we, we haven't been able to bring them back into the lab yet, but one of the first things we're going to do is do lots of different perceptual tasks to see if it's related to a perceptual deficit or something more than that. I see. I see. Okay. Um, so your, your dissertation uh, specifically, um, well, like you said, like you already said, you looked at kind of two different, different things. And, and um, by the way, people can check that out at amybelfi.com. It's A-M-Y-B-E-L-F-I.com. And uh, uh, I was really interested in the, uh, the music-evoked uh, autobi autobiographical memory. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Um, yeah, so that's kind of the idea I was saying that came upon me in the car ride back from Lollapalooza. Right, but right. Um, it's the idea that you know, it's something we've all experienced when you hear a particular piece of music and it can, you know, almost immediately take you back in time to a moment of your life that is a, you know, vivid memory that's been triggered by this music. So I wanted to study that process a little bit more and see how if memories evoked by music were similar or different than memories evoked by other types of uh, memory cues. Mm -hmm. So um, the one study that I published recently on this in the journal Memory was um, not in brain damage participants, but just healthy uh, participants who listened to musical clips and looked at uh, pictures of famous faces. This was the kind of comparison I was looking at between musical objects and visual objects. And after each item, participants reported whether it triggered a memory for them and then described the memory that was triggered by it. And so I took all of these memory descriptions and then used a coding scheme to identify uh, different types of information in the memory. So what I was interested in, the question I was mainly asking was, are memories evoked by music 
more vivid than memories evoked by other cues, in this case, visual cues. And so by vivid, what I mean is memory that is really rich in episodic detail. These are details that are about the particular memory. So it'd be like sights, sounds, feelings, um, just vivid details about the scene that you were in or uh, Mm -hmm. things like that. So I took the memory descriptions and coded to identify these type of episodic details. And what I found was that memories evoked by music were more vivid and that they had a higher proportion of episodic details than the memories evoked by um, pictures of faces. That was the main finding from that study. Wow. So people actually wrote out their memories, like the... What they actually were, you were able yeah, to. Yeah, so so they they didn't write them out. They actually described them to me to the experimenter. So the okay. way it would work is they would come into the lab, hear a song, and then I would ask you know if the song triggered a memory, and if it did, they would audio they, they would be audio recorded while they described the memory, and then I would go back and transcribe them and read them and do all of this coding. That had to have been really interesting. What uh, what kinds of things did you see as they were uh, recounting these memories? Um, yeah, it was, it was really cool. It was very time consuming. I had lots of, um, helpful research assistants who did a lot of the transcribing. Um, but so the, the music that I played, this was based on a experiment that was done in the mid 2000s by Peter Janata, who's a professor at UC Davis. And he's done some really, really excellent research on this topic that kind of inspired my work. Um, so they listened to songs that were popular when they were, between the ages of 15 and 30 years old. So I chose this age range because there's a well-established finding called um, like the autobiographical memory bump almost in that it's this is the period of life when most people recall memories from when asked to give an autobiographical memory is this late adolescence, early adulthood. So um, the songs I chose were Billboard Top 100 Hits from the years when people were between 15 and 30 years old. So everyone got a personalized set of music that was from their adolescence and early adulthood. So most, it was, yeah, acquiring the stimuli took quite a bit of time. Um, But people, first of all, really enjoyed doing the experiment. Like they liked hearing the songs that were from this portion of their life. And, you know, consequently, a lot of the memories related to um, college and high school, you know, I got a lot of memories about, senior proms or Mm. riding around in cars with their friends, you know, late at night in high school or sitting in the dorms, hanging out with their friends, drinking in college or a lot about, you know, meeting their spouses and their wedding and that kind of stuff. Um, It was mostly happy memories like that. There were, there were some times when people would give sad memories that, you know, it's reminded them of a friend who passed away or Mm. something like that. But overwhelmingly, um, the memories were positive. Did you have any, are there any um, uh, instances that just just stick in your head of somebody being incredibly emotional at hearing a song, um, tears or uh, you know, like loud laughter or anything like that? Yeah, I, I do. One that really sticks out to me was an occasion when someone did cry because of this song and it stuck out to me just because it was. I had not encountered that before. Um, it was really, you know, a testament to how emotionally powerful music can be. But it was a case when someone was reminded of one of their friends who died, and this was yeah. one of their favorite songs. And you know, they described hanging out with this person in college, and um, it was really sad and powerful for them. But um, yeah, it was a very salient episode of when someone got extremely emotional based on one of the memory cues. Yeah. 
Wow. So during this time, were you uh, moonlighting as a DJ? You had all these tunes to choose from. <laughs> no. Yeah, but it is crazy. Now I hear you know, I hear songs all the time and I can almost say like, oh, that was from 1955 or whatever because I re- recognize them from right, uh, right. experiment. <laughs> so I feel like I gained a large knowledge of, of pop music just from doing this experiment. Sure. And now those are tied into your own autobiographical yeah, memory yeah, because totally. this was probably a, a very... Um, I mean, working on a dissertation and working on research is rarely described as relaxing. You know, right. it's yeah. a, a pretty intense time in your own uh, career path and your own yeah. trajectory and uh, development. So that's very true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so something that's problematic: men's uh, uh, autobiographical memory versus women's. <laughs> oh yeah, uh, it's problematic for men. Mm-hmm. Um, why is it better? Why, do, why are women, I mean, this is something that I think, uh, people can just anecdotally, um, come to this conclusion that, um, women seem to be a little bit better at remembering details and, and what exactly was said, mm-hmm. but it appears, uh, I was reading, um, well, reading your study and, uh, I guess it's been clinically, <laughs> uh, proven or in the, and, uh, or empirically proven that that's the case. Um, yeah, so this is kind of just something I, I looked at in the, in the study on autobiographical memory and healthy adults, um, just because I think it's important to um, include sex as a demographic variable in mm-hmm. all of your analyses. Um, so it's not, it's not like my, my main area, especially understanding sex differences in autobiographical memory. I didn't find any differences with regard to was it music evoked versus face evoked, um, but overall there were sex differences. Uh, I I don't really have a good explanation for why I think that happened. It could be all kinds of things. It it could be that, you know, maybe since uh, the experimenter was a woman, that women might be more likely to say, you know, more things to me mm. um, because I had people, you know, telling them to me as opposed to just writing them down themselves. You know, that, right, right. that might have introduced some kind of an effect. Ah. Or it could be, you know, something about, a difference between the way men and women are socialized to talk about themselves or talk about their memories, um, Mm -hmm. or something like that. I'm, I'm not really, I don't have a solid explanation for that. (laughs) It's just something that I guess, uh, we'll have to deal with. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, the, other than the emotional responses, uh, that seem to come up when people hear uh, music from that, from, when they were 15 to 30 years old, what clinical implications do you uh, think there might be for um, uh, listening to that music other than just the emotional response? Do you um, think of any? I think, well, I think the main thing would probably be the emotional uh, qualities of listening to that type of music because, as I said, they were, people would visibly get like, you know, they would become happy by listening to this music. They would smile. Uh And Uh I was like thinking, I wish I had video recorded these because I probably could have done some kind of interesting coding of just facial expressions or gesture or something while they were telling these memories because people seem to really um, get a kick out of it. And, you know, most experiments that you do in a psychology or neurology department are pretty dull. And so I would have people say, you know, like, this was one of my favorite experiments I've ever done. It was great. I got to listen to cool music. So um, 
I think it definitely has emotional and emotional power. And also that it, it is a good memory cue. Like people listen to 30 musical clips and on average, 10 of those 30 clips would evoke a personal memory from their life. So it seems to be pretty, pretty good at triggering autobiographical memories. Yeah. So that can just be a, a, a good like mood regulator. And, and this has been talked about in a lot of research and a lot of people already use music in that way, but it's, it's right. reinforcing for that. Right. Mm-hmm. What's going on uh, neurochemically when someone has one of those uh, happy r- responses? Um, so I'm I'm definitely not the right person to uh, answer this question, but there has been some interesting research um, from Valerie Salampour, who is a postdoc, I think, in Toronto, and she has a couple papers out in the last few years that have been looking at musical reward and pleasure when listening to music and using neuroimaging um, and specifically using PET imaging and fMRI. And her research has um, touched on the idea that listening to music that is highly pleasurable, uh, I guess, influences dopamine activity or you know release of dopamine or activity in the striatum the region of the brain that's associated with reward and she has some cool research looking at differences in activity during um the peak of your pleasurable response to music so like a musical chill and Mm -hmm. leading up to that peak so there's differential activity in the anticipation of a reward versus um the completion of that musical reward so there's definitely work out there on that and it seems to indicate uh-huh. that the striatum is important for musical reward just like it is for other types of rewarding behaviors uh-huh. it's so fun to think about i i can think of specific songs where um i mean i've heard it a hundred times a thousand times maybe yeah and and the same musical moments always get me and and i haven't thought much about the anticipation of those moments but i do i you know i feel it coming and it's like yeah. oh, i can't wait for this part in the song you know yeah totally <laughs> it's just uh it's it's a cool feeling. And yeah, it, it, you can you can feel something happening in your mm-hmm. body and in your yeah, brain. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right? it is interesting how even though you know what's coming, it still has the same effect on you. Like it doesn't dampen at all knowing what is coming next. Yeah, exactly. It's not like a joke that you've heard before. It's, yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's it's pretty reliable. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um. So what uh what 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 are you into what music does that for you what music gives you those kinds of responses yeah so i i've kind of i guess i've matured a little bit in my musical taste over the years but generally i've pretty much stuck with the music that i've started listening to when i was you know in fourth grade which is i love ska music um (laughs) did you have older siblings so I kind of I, I didn't. I'm the oldest child, oh, okay. but I had an older cousin who was very influential uh-huh. on my music taste. Like she would go to Warped Tour every year in the mm-hmm. '90s and would bring me back T-shirts, you know, signed by Real Big Fish and those Third wow. Wave ska bands. Yeah. Um, and so I was I was incredibly obsessed with Green Day, who's not a ska band, but that kind of '90s um, like pop punk stuff, like sure. Offspring, Green Day, uh-huh. Rancid is one of my favorite bands. Operation Ivy, obviously, if you like ska. Um, you have to like them. And then I started to get a little bit more into like the second wave style, like the specials and um, the madness and those kind of um, British ska bands. So uh-huh. I, I still really like listening to that. Um, it, it brings back a lot of memories for me. And now I guess I like, um, 
have branched a little bit more into like indie type of indie rock or indie pop, but I still like really enjoy punk and ska music. Sure, sure. That's, that's my heart. Nice. It's awesome. NYU postdoc slash ska and punk rock yeah. aficionado. <laughs> yep. <laughs> awesome. Um, uh, do you play music? Um, so yeah, I grew up playing piano. Uh, I started, I actually, a very vivid autobiographical memory that's not triggered by music, but just a vivid memory for me is the day that I got my piano. I had like wanted a piano forever. And my parents would say it's too expensive. And I was the kind of kid who would become really into a hobby and then a month later would be over it. So they didn't want to buy me a piano, but I had a relative who had a piano who died and, you know, gave, we ended up getting, it. and I just remember seeing the moving truck, bringing the piano up the driveway and could not have been more excited. Uh. And so I was very into piano growing up and, you know, doing competitions and stuff as a teenager. Um, and then I went to college and was really debating being a music major, but I really liked psychology and just didn't quite have the devotion to practice hours and hours every day in college. So I continued taking lessons and I sang too. I sang in choirs in high school and college at St. Olaf College, which has an incredible choir program and music program in general. So I, I took lessons all through college. And then when I got to grad school, I just didn't have a piano or really have time to go find a piano and play. So I've, I haven't really done much playing since then, unfortunately. Yeah, I see. I see. Do you think, um, uh... That little girl who saw the the piano <laughs> arriving in in the truck, or uh, I mean the the high schooler who was going to piano competitions, do you think she would have expected you to be studying neuroscience and music together, like still closely tied to music, but in in this scientific capacity? Yeah, I guess I wouldn't have been too surprised. I mean, there was a time in my in my you know early teenage years when I thought I was going to be like a pianist for my career. Um, you know, just like little kids think they're going to be a ballerina or whatever. Um, but I no, I probably wouldn't have been surprised. I always was really into school and science, and I think this what I'm doing right now is really a perfect combination of my interests um, because I love music and I love neuroscience and the brain and psychology. So. Yeah, I think I would have been pleased to know that this is what I ended up doing. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. That's mm -hmm. awesome. Um, okay. Uh, I know you probably have things to do in the lab. I'm going to oh. ask a couple of qu sure. quick questions. They don't have to. I mean, um, they don't have to be quick. Just uh, <laughs> a couple more questions that aren't necessarily okay. tied directly to uh, your research. Actually, you know what? Sure. Before we go there, are there any um, overarching or broad things you want to say about what you've learned or things that you think everybody should know about that came about through your research? Oh, geez, that's hard. Um, I, <laughs> I don't, I don't know if there's anything really broad or overarching that I think everyone should know that hasn't really been touched on already. Okay. The idea that, you know, music is a really powerful, um, memory cue and, emotional, emotionally salient stimulus, um, you know, things that we have been discussing already, which should, you know, be obvious to people from just their everyday life listening to music. But I think the type of work that I'm doing can help us better understand why that is and what's uh, happening in the brain when we listen to music and it makes us feel those things. Mm -hmm. Okay. What's, what's your 
Endgame, do you have a, a, a guess as to what you'll be studying in five, ten years? Um, so right now at NYU, what I'm working on is I'm actually studying um, music, but also other types of art. So oh, okay. looking at like paintings and poetry. And an interesting question to me is how are these things similar or different? But the overarching theme of what I'm doing at NYU is looking at how thing how our experience changes over time as we interact with a piece of art so you know when you listen to music music is constantly changing time is extremely important for music and i'm looking at how people's feelings of pleasure change while they listen to music you know um a certain point they might really like the next measure they might start to hate hate it um and what's going on in the brain then so i think i'm going to at least for the next, you know, few years or so, be continuing on this idea of how the listener experience is evolving over time while listening to a piece of music. Oh, that's super interesting. Yeah. <laughs> and it brought to mind just, uh, I've, I can think of times when I've been listening to a song and kind of like getting into it, I'm digging it. And then there's a lyric and I'm like, oh, I hate it. I hate <laughs> yeah. this song. Or there's, there's something musical that happens and I'm like, oh, I hate it. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, I was just getting there, and then I want, and and it does make me wonder why, because I can't always um, specifically say why. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely an interesting question. I mean, some people might be more biased towards certain stimulus features of the music, or like you said, maybe lyrics, or it probably relates to personal preference. But there might be a certain sense of certain things might be almost not universal but might be more reliable at trigger, triggering specific types of responses than others um so yeah it's it's a, an interesting direction to go in and i'm excited to be doing it at nyu yeah yeah i'd also wonder if um musical experience or like experience as a musician plays into that because i think of songs yeah. also where it seems like everybody likes them and you're like oh yeah <laughs> and then there's songs where it seems like everybody likes them and you're like yeah yeah it's a great song yeah it's... i i definitely think musical experience is an important factor they like all the experiments i'm doing here um we're giving people a questionnaire that measures different aspects of you know musical training and musical proficiency but also just how much do you enjoy music or different qualities like that and those are all going to be important for the types of analyses we do because um musical experience can definitely influence the way you listen to music and the way your brain responds to music um a friend of mine who's a grad student in my lab here just had a really cool paper come out um his name's keith doling and his paper was looking at um neural entrainment to music in musicians and non-musicians and so there are definitely differences um, huh. in the brains of musicians. So it's something important to consider in any research you're doing on music. Uh, does this mean that in general, well, okay, so there are definitely differences. Do you think there are benefits to musical training? Um, I, mean, I, I guess there have been a lot of studies that have suggested that there, that there are. Uh, let me phrase the question this way. If and when you have kids, will they take music lessons? Um... Yeah, I would want my kids to take music lessons just because I think it was such an important part of my life growing up. And I love music and I would love to listen to my kids practice piano. Um, but I don't know if I would force it on them just because I, I know lots of stories of people 
I'm like, I hate piano because my mom made me made me do it, even though I didn't want to. Um, I don't know if I would have them do it just because you know there's these there's supposed benefits to it, but more just because music itself is really enriching and mm-hmm. um, it's just such a great experience to be able to learn an instrument. And also, you know, there's a sense of community in if you're in an ensemble or a choir that is just amazing. So I would definitely encourage my kids to do it for those reasons alone. Right, right. Um, yeah, and maybe maybe it doesn't have to be music, or, and maybe it also has to do with something, or has something to do with the way it's taught and how people are initially exposed to music. Um, I'm, I'm sure there are some uh, interesting anthropological yeah. uh, considerations and, and examples um, where music is a little bit more um, robust in the community. So, anyway, things to think about. Okay. Yeah. Um, who is someone in your field that everyone should know about, or uh, someone who's doing work that everyone should know about? Um, that's a hard question. Uh, so, well, I mentioned earlier Peter Janata, who's at UC Davis, who was kind of the first person that I'm aware of to look at the neural correlates of music evoked autobiographical memories. He's kind of the music and autobiographical memory guy. So I think he is doing really cool stuff. Um, and people should definitely know about him. I also, my advisor at NYU, um, David Popel does really, really great research. A lot of his stuff is about, um, language and auditory perception more generally, but then he has, uh, several studies on music, like the one I just told you that Keith, um, published recently. So I would definitely recommend checking his research out. Um, so yeah, those are two great music related scientists that everyone <laughs> okay. should know about. Fantastic. I'll, uh, I'll put those in the show notes for people who are cool. listening so that <laughs> they can um, look them up. Uh, most memorable concert you've ever been to? Oh my gosh, that's a cool question, but that's really, really hard. I, I have to say probably the most memorable concert was, actually, I have a great music evoked autobiographical memory to this. So Whenever I hear the song American Idiot by Green Day, who, as I mentioned earlier, I was Mm -hmm. obsessed with as a child, it reminds me of um, I was 16 in high school. I was driving in my car with my little brother sitting next to me, and I was listening to the, like, alternative radio station in Omaha, um, which is where I went to high school. And Green Day came on the radio, their song American Idiot, and then after the song, they announced that Green Day is coming to Omaha, Nebraska. And I was like, (laughs) started freaking out, screaming, like, I was so excited. I remember walking in the house, like, screaming about my mom. I was like, what's going on? Why are you screaming? I was so excited that Green Day was coming to Omaha because I had been listening to them for, you know, six, eight eight years or something at that point. Uh Um, So yeah, I got tickets and my friend and I went to that concert and I could not have been more excited. I loved it. It was great. I mean, it was just like my childhood favorite band and I finally got to see them. So I loved it. Right. And you had that whole uh, in-between period of anticipation to look forward to the concert. (laughs) Totally. Just to listen to all of their albums on repeat that I had them all memorized already. But I was so thrilled to get to go see them it was it was really fun uh amazing amazing they're, they're uh they're from berkeley i think uh which is right by yeah me. yeah they are yeah, there's yeah, a yeah. lot of music out rancid is from there too you know oh, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. good punk scene from like the early 90s heck yeah 80s. definitely definitely and um you know uc davis is also pretty close to here is yeah. uh uh 
you said Peter Janata, right? Yeah. Um, will he be at this uh, conference that you're going to in San Francisco in the summer? Yeah, I think he's actually probably, I think he's on the organizing committee for it, but it's the International Conference on Music Cognition and Perception, and I am really excited to be attending it. This past summer, I went to the Society for Music and Percep- per- Music Perception and Cognition meeting in Nashville, uh-huh. which is um, kind of like the North American branch, and then every other year they have like the International Conference, which is in San Francisco this coming summer. Um, so yes, I just submitted my abstract yesterday, and I plan on attending. And yeah, Peter should be there as along with a you know pretty much everyone doing research on this topic will probably be at this conference. So you should definitely cool. come. Yeah, I think I'm gonna have to check that out. It's just yeah. across the bay. I, <laughs> it sounds like it'd be silly not to. Yeah, totally. Um, most recent s- song or artist that you listen to. Um, most recent song or artist that I listened to. Okay. Let's, let's see. I'm like, should I get on Spotify and start listening to them? Oh, (laughs) actually there's this band that Spotify recommended to me. I just, um, like tweeted about it the other day. They're called teen girl scientists monthly, um, (laughs) which I like just saw that, you know, Spotify, they can say, you know, uh, discover on Spotify. It'll Uh recommend different bands to you uh-huh. and i usually just totally judge a band by its album cover and pick whichever one i'm like oh it looks good and i've been so pleased with spotify recommendations lately but this band teen girl scientist monthly i saw the name i was like this is amazing i'm a scientist i'm not a teen but i'm very pro women in science so uh-huh. i just uh-huh. thought i was gonna love this band and i end up really liking them so it's kind of like a indie pop rock kind of stuff that i really like that like little garage rock style of indie rock um so yeah that's like the most recent thing i listened to just like yesterday and they're really cool we'll have to we'll have to try to get in touch with them somehow we'll tweet at them let them know we're talking about them (laughs) yeah they're like this crazy girl keeps tweeting about our band but they're great you know and then they'll see oh she's a neuroscientist at nyu maybe we need to look her up um who uh would you like to publicly thank? Oh, wow. There's a ton of people to thank. Um, well, you know, I obviously have to thank my family, my parents for finally letting me get the piano that I wanted <laughs> and, you know, you know, letting me go to whatever college I wanted and St. Olaf. My mom is actually the person who discovered St. Olaf College and encouraged me to go visit there. And, you know, it was one of the best decisions I ever made. It was an amazing school, amazing place to go to college, and the music program there is incredible. So that really helped me sustain my interest in music um, throughout college. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I have to thanks to my family, and then I have major thanks to my grad school advisor Dan Chernell, who was just an incredible advisor and really encouraged me and helped me develop my ideas and become a better scientist. Um, so he's another person to thank. Obviously, my friends in graduate school and in college for helping me get through all of the stressful, um, things that you have to do while writing a dissertation. And then, um, my husband who I met in graduate school, um, who is also a grad student at Iowa and now he's a postdoc at Columbia and he's been there with me through all of this Mm -hmm. crazy stuff and moved to New York and, um, has just been a great support, support system along the way. 
So awesome. I hope I didn't miss anyone major. <laughs> um, you know what? People always get missed. Don't feel bad. If I yeah. put her on the spot. If you got missed, it's, you're still thanked. Don't worry about yeah. it. Right? <laughs> well, Amy, thank you so much for um, uh, being my first victim. I mean, uh, interview uh, interviewee, I guess. Thanks for thanks for being my first guest on the show. Yeah, thanks um, for having me. And, uh, you know, we've we've known each other for a while now, although we haven't, like, we just knew we were kind of in the same field and, and yeah. you know, we used to hang out, gosh, years ago when we were both in grad school uh, yeah. at Iowa. But, um, you know, I just saw the research that you were doing and uh, thought it was really cool. And I'm really glad you came on today to talk about it. And I know that people have learned something and have enjoyed hearing your stories, too. Yeah, it's been really fun. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. We'll have to do it again. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. When you're out, when you, oh, when you're in San Francisco, we can do it in person. Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Let's yeah, do it. Cool. So a big thank you to uh, Amy for coming on as a guest. Uh, you can follow her on Twitter at, uh, at Oracle at Belfi. So Oracle at Belfi, O-R-A-C-L-E-A-T-B-E-L-F-I. I'll put a link to that in the show notes, uh, as well as some links that she sent me um, after we finished recording our episode. And again, if you are uh, looking for some cool color chords, like some... Um, uh, major sevenths, some six chords, some minor sevenths, some add nines, and uh, um, you want to see how you can use those in some, in chord progressions, then go to musictherapysource.com slash recap, okay? Uh, thanks for tuning in. I hope to see you again soon. Goodbye. <laughs>